Welcome to the Middleway Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Goodman. This podcast is about seeing the world through the lens of interconnectedness. It's about recognizing our common humanity and discovering pragmatic solutions to improve well being from the individual to the collective. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to the Middle Way. The topic of today's episode is one that has been very top of mind for me for many years and is a topic that's very near and dear to my own heart, my own experience intellectually and emotionally. And I could not be happier to discuss this with our guest today, Kristen Chong. Kristen is a neuroscience PhD, Buddhist chaplaincy trainee, and creative entrepreneur. She's the author of Debug Your Meditation, which helps people build healthy habits around meditation practice. And she offers speaking, consulting, and online courses at the intersection of Buddhism, science, and creativity. She hosts an online writing community called Kind Camp, which offers a space for people to dive deeper into personal reflection through guided writing exercises and support based in the principles of Buddhism and neuroscience. In this episode, Kristen and I generally discuss the role of mindfulness and Buddhism in the modern Western world. We explore questions together, such as can the practice of mindfulness and meditation be just extracted from its historical, cultural, and philosophical roots, that being Buddhism for the most part, and just plopped into modern Western society. What are the issues around that? What problems do people experience in meditation? What adverse experiences can people have? And in what context do those experiences come up? And what are some alternative practices that people can use that are still grounded in these same principles and these same practices, but maybe a sort of adaptation to a practice if we do struggle with certain mental health or physical health conditions or in a certain social context. So these are among the types of questions that Kristen and I explore in this episode. We also talk about the tension between being someone who teaches spiritual principles and practices and living in a capitalist society and having the desire for financial success, which Kristen and I both share and, and openly discuss. We talk about whether spirituality can be shortcutted through psychedelics. We both share our take and experience with that and much more. So this is a wonderful, juicy episode. And I just want to say that I have gotten to know Kristen a little bit over the past few months through some conversations prior to this podcast. And she is really just a lovely human being, someone who is sharp and has a big heart and lots and lots of integrity. And I'm just glad that she's exist and that she exists and she's doing the work that she's doing in the world. With that, I will give you Kristen Chong.
I have the great pleasure of being here with Kristen Chong. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me on the Middleway Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. This is so fun. Before we even jump in, I just want to let listeners know that before we started rolling just now, Kristen invited me to take three mindful breaths with her, with I, which I really, really appreciated. That was a first for the podcast and helped to center me. I also noticed how busy my mind was during that time and how much I was leaning into the future, aka right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure these are all topics that we will get into given your background and expertise. But I wanted to start out with your story. You have a very cool and interesting and impressive background. You have a PhD in neuroscience. You're training um, as, a, as a chaplain, um, as a Buddhist chaplain, and you do consulting work. But maybe if you can take us back a little bit and tell us how you got interested in the first part of the story in neuroscience, and then we can go from there. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Matthew. Um, actually, before we started, too, I was telling Matthew that I will tell this story, though, to be quite frank, I have no idea <laughs> how and why I'm here. Um, so this is definitely a retroactive retelling. Same here, um, Kristen. Same here. <laughs> no yeah, idea. Exactly. Um, so I, I want to say that I remember as a child being like, thrust into the heart of suffering quite early. Um, my dad um, had a stroke when I was pretty young, um, and I saw the ill effects of that. Like he, he's he's uh, paralyzed on his left side completely, and like he can't um, really talk properly. And I think that the, the most like upsetting part is that, you know, his mind is not quite there, you know? Like he um, has uncontrollable laughter, just a lot of these symptoms that are very typical of a stroke. Um, and so um, seeing that suffering really made me like really interested to understand, okay, how can, how can we not have this? This is terrible. Um, and that drew me into the field of neuroscience. Um, and that's where I did my uh, PhD. And um, however, I think one <laughs> twist to the story is that um, I also remember as a kid that my family um, went through periods of like great poverty and also periods of like great financial success. However, the net happiness was actually about the same. <laughs> like, um, it didn't matter either way. And I saw that, like, you know, with my family, um, my, my parents are pretty atheist. Uh, my brother is, like, Christian on occasion. Um, and I, but I just saw that, like, no matter how much, like, financial, like, gain or loss happened, of course, like, loss was really, like, terrible and everyone felt bad. But then we're still on this, like, treadmill of, like, no matter how much money you make, there's still this, like, idea that one day you'll get old and sick and you lose it, that kind of thing. So I also saw this, like, limitation of, like, our earthly goals and like you know was thinking okay there must be a better way right like there must be like something else we could aim for um however i went to neuroscience at first and like got my training there and i saw that like science was really great at answering the how about how our mind works in terms of biology um however it's not really um designed to be tackling the issue of like suffering and like what are our um, aspirations and what is the ultimate goals in life and I found much more solace in answering these questions um, within the Buddhist context. It's really fascinating that your experience, how you described your experience as a kid, seeing both sides of the 
of a financial life. I mean, maybe not having enough and how, and, and having financial success. And in both of those, maybe recognizing the, the temporariness, um, of money and, and how, um, yeah, I guess the temporariness of it. And I'm wondering if that sort of drew you into kind of asking these more spiritual questions and, and down the path that you're on now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I'm, absolutely. And I feel really um, like I, I definitely don't want to compare myself with the OG Buddha. But then I was like, oh, man, I got my version of the palatial living story, you know, and, and then like seeing the heavenly messengers and going like, oh, man, I guess we have to figure this out. <laughs> um, and I feel like that's something um, I see a lot in other like seeker types as well. There was like some early recognition that like whatever that life provides um, in terms of worldly goals just doesn't seem quite satisfying enough. So I was wondering, Matthew, to throw the question back to you, like, what, <laughs> what, what is, what is the thing that got you onto the path? Yeah, that's a great question. I think my my easy answer is is suffering, just like I'm sure the answer is for every other human being, stress and anxiety. But you have me thinking about kind of how your experience was relates to my own experience in a way and, and what got me interested in Buddhism. And I think also that sense of like, never like arriving, like you, you were describing with your family, like even when you have things, even when you have money, it's sort of never enough. You always feel like you need more. And I know my experience as a kid, like my mood, like, you know, maybe not outwardly, but internally, like was pretty labile. Like I would like really vacillate between like feeling more anxious or down and then having more periods of feeling happy or more euphoric and noticing the temporariness of that. Um, that really got me interested. And I think initially interested in how do I just be happy? How do I always feel good? And then I started to realize that that is not a realistic or even helpful goal to have as a human being. And that probably drew me more towards studying and practicing um, Buddhism and mindfulness and being able to kind of just first recognize the temporariness of everything, um, that everything changes. And really now I'm really working deeply with this practice of like this moment being enough because you know, no matter how much we have of anything, you know, money or material things or uh, a feeling or whatever, um, there's always that anxiety, that sense of insecurity around that, that we need to be able to secure that in the future. It creates so much anxiety and suffering. And so I think my practice right now is just like, yeah, this this moment is 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 enough. This this moment is definitely enough and just working with that. So I think a long answer to to your reverse question, which I really appreciate, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, entrepreneurship is itself a spiritual practice as we're both learning. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. So, um, so you are, you, you got your PhD in neuroscience. Um, and I know a lot of people at that point will usually pursue some sort of pathway, either in academia, um, or in biotech or something in that realm. Um, tell me about what happened from from that point um, after you you graduated and where did, where did you end up? Yeah, um, so I, I want to tell this version of the story because in case there are any budding graduate school 
<laughs> applicants um, who are listening to this pod. Um, so I, uh, after I finished graduate school, I had the u- what's pretty standard, right? Of like, okay, now what? Like, you know, I've you know, uh, I've produced a few papers. Um, they were on multiple sclerosis. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm pretty proud of this work. Um, however, I didn't, I wasn't sure what to do. I think that that's that's the state I was in. Um, and um, so I kind of went into a default path. I was, like, I was like, let me continue doing more research and then and, and then pursue a postdoc. So then I did like a postdoc for about three years studying um, the human genetics of sleep and circadian rhythm. However, um, during this time, I, I felt like, you know, academia wasn't for me. Um, it requires a, a monastic like devotion, as you know, um, in order to get professorship. So then um, I was like, OK, like what else do people do? Um, and I went into um, the industry after that. Um, and I specialized in science communication um, in the biotech industry. Um, so, so I felt like I, um, in terms of like career choice, I was um, quite happy in terms of like, you know, oh, okay, like I, I studied this much science and I, I really like talking about science and to be able to find a job that was related to this interest was really fulfilling. Eventually, I, I felt like a, a sense of like, you know, I, I've, you know, I became like uh, the marketing lead and, and et cetera, et cetera, in a big pharma company. Um, however, I didn't feel a, a sense of satisfaction for myself because I felt like I want a greater sense of autonomy. And it's, you know, it's much harder to get that in a large company, right? Um, so then I went into uh, freelancing um, and, and working in the same career choice, but still having this like revisiting the sense of like wait i kind of set off trying to understand suffering <laughs> like how did i get here <laughs> so so then um came a bit more soul searching uh, and which led me to um eventually um be, be, uh, participating in uh, chaplaincy training yeah. um so i can tell you a bit more about that i would love to hear more about this training and and yeah tell us what's what's involved mm -hmm. yeah so um I think this is the challenging thing with like telling a a life story because like um th there was the career path line but I think there was also the inner monologue and inner world line where I felt like okay like uh, you know th there were definitely periods of like um great depression for me um where I felt like you know deep unhappiness and that actually that, that was one of my um beginning foray into Buddhist practice. Um, it, it was like coming from my own deep suffering and wanting a path out. Um, and, and so uh, with me, I discovered um, Buddhism from quite young because it's like culturally, um, I grew up in Asia where it's culturally much more embedded. Um, however, it's a kind of Buddhism that's a lot more about praying to a Buddha and then for money or other, other worldly possessions and things like that sort of approach. Um, however, I was exposed to the more Western, like meditative, um, ego transcending approach um, much more later uh, when I came to the US. Um, and like through um, the powers of the internet, I came across uh, teachings from Gil Fronsdale um, who had set up like this website called audiodharma.org like way back in the day before podcasts were a thing. Nice. Um, and I remember like listening to Gil and being like, wow, this person is so measured in everything he says. 
and like no matter what he recommends you to do he always says it in a way where you feel like he's not pushing anything agenda and mm. that like if you don't like what he's saying you can just drop it and maybe it's not helpful to you and that really stood out to me as like maybe this person's onto something because whatever the goal of buddhism practice is if i can like be as nice as he is i would already feel like that was a good thing um, and so I became more involved in like um, the Inside Meditation Center um, after I was able to move to the Bay Area by coincidence. And that led me to uh, deepen my practice. Um, and eventually, uh, it's very funny. I saw the flyer for the chaplaincy training like decade, like not a decade ago, but maybe at least like several years ago. Um, and I always thought like one day I would do this when I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, because it's a, it's an expression of, of the, the the practice, right? I'm like, okay, like I've learned this much. It'll be great if I can learn to provide it to like this kind of spiritual care to other people. Um, however, I didn't feel like I was ready through whatever metric I had in my head, um, including having um, a job with enough like um, autonomy in terms of hours, right? In order to participate mm -hmm. in such a training. Um, however, I think after the pandemic, um, I discovered that I love writing about Buddhism um, and I found myself in a place where I had a practice interview with Gil and telling him all about how much it turns out I love to write about Buddhism and share with friends. Um, and he encouraged me to apply for the program. So I think it's like one of those like things where the, the simple answer would be, um, you know, I did neuroscience and then... <laughs> I discovered Buddhism and then I tried to like do even more with that. But in reality, it's like a, a flow of conditions and causes. I don't particularly, I don't actually understand um, that kind of like came together to create the current situation. I like how you described like kind of how there's these really two sort of storylines that can take place in someone's life. There's sort of the outer storyline, the thing that we can see, but then there's also the inner arc. Um, and you mentioned for you, you know, observing suffering very young in your life and a little bit later going through a period of depression um, and being curious about Buddhism. I'm wondering, like, what was it that made you feel ready? Was it you, you mentioned you weren't ready at one time? Was mm -hmm. it just that it, it started lining up more with your schedule? You had more free time or like when did you at what point did you decide like because this is a it's a big thing to jump into and you, you describe spiritual care and it's like that that's like no joke so like how did you know you were ready to start diving into this type of work yeah um it's very funny right because there is a little bit of permission seeking with this exercise um so I felt ready when Gil says I can apply. I think that is the simple answer. It does really help when the meditation teacher you admire tells you that you are ready. Um, however, I think um, subconsciously I had been planting some seeds. So uh, I was actually looking into my journal um, uh, like, gosh, a couple months ago. And I saw that back in 2017, I had written something like, um, and by the, t at the time I was w working a full-time job, but I was writing about how, you know, it would be nice if one day I own my own little business that's like mildly profitable and that, you know, I would be able to train as a spiritual care provider or teacher one day. Um, so it's like, but however, it felt like a pipe dream. It was like, okay, I will somehow do these things when I'm, older and wiser at an undetermined date right 
Right. Um, but there's been like little things I did without even realizing. So, for example, like you know, in trying to build a freelance business, um, like so that I can have autonomy of schedule, um, like deepening my own practice and like um, you know, and en engaging in the Dharma world through like uh, building community and through like supporting a nonprofit uh, for a while. Um, that's um, that's related to Buddhism. So it's like little, little things that later went all into the chaplaincy application um, were already starting to build up. Oh, and there was another thing I did, which was like volunteer for Sidewalk Talk, which is a nonprofit where we literally just sit in a chair with a sign that says free listening. And we just listen to random people <laughs> off the street when, with you know whatever issues they have, like not providing therapy, just free listening. Um, so it's, it's like there are these little things that I started doing, which I was like in my back of my mind, I'm just thinking maybe that's a great idea. I have no idea why, but I think I should do these things because it will be nice, um, but not having a very clear reason why. Um, and only later on, like and now I'm telling you the story of like, OK, like if I trace back these other things I did, um, but at the time they are not conscious. They're mm -hmm. just like choices that seem like neat ideas. Mm hmm. I have a difficult question for you around this. You mentioned all of the wonderful work that you do in the, as in this program as far as giving back. And of course, this is part of practice and not just Buddhism, but other spiritual traditions as well is, you know, charity work and giving back. Mm -hmm. Yet we do, we live in a society, we live in a capitalist society mm -hmm. and you are an independent entrepreneur and mm -hmm. wondering how you balance and reconcile these things in your work. And this is coming from a place of genuine curiosity, I think, mm -hmm. being very much being able to relate to that tension of wanting to to give in a and um, doing that in, in, a, in a very authentic way. Um, and I'll just speak for myself here, but for me, I mean, there is also a desire there to do really well financially and be very successful. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's hard to reconcile. I think some people have really figured that out. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm just curious where, where you're at <laughs> with yeah. that and what <laughs> wisdom you can share with us. Oh, thanks, Matthew. Um, I have no wisdom. I only have stories. <laughs> so this is one intellectual way I'm, I'm reconciling it. So I think we have this association of like a Buddhist practitioner, someone who's like really Long, like far along the path as someone who's like monastic right like they they live completely off dana and generosity um they live very austere lives um and you know are perfect role models for spiritual practice um however in the suttas <laughs> we, we there there is the fourfold sangha right there is the the bhikkhuni the bhikkhuni bhikkhuni the monastic the monks and the nuns and then there is the lay women and and uh, lay people in general who are part of this like um support system um and so back in the ancient times uh like the buddha was really good about praising people um and he would say like you know this so and so is my best disciple in x active type of like you know activity and I remember reading this book called Disciples of the Buddha. I think it's actually compiled by Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, where he talked about the best lay people. <laughs> and they were the richest people in town. <laughs> um, you know, and they are the ones who are able to support all of the monastic activities through like, you know, it's called like 
you know, um, you know, Jettas Grove and, and all these like places, um, they were like built through patrons um, of the Buddha at the time. And they were absolutely loaded, um, but also considered really good practitioners because like they were able to, you know, pro like use the money towards like generosity and supporting the you know the practice while not being centrally attached to um such you know wealth um so there's other stories that that you know display how they have like really good restraints etc so i think like to me like i thought was really telling how it's like hmm that's strange that the best like disciples happen to be like you know financially like quite well off and yeah it wasn't a criticized point um, so I think a lot of it, like, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it kind of like point to me, like, uh, like seeing that, oh, maybe like I'm using practice sometimes or like, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings as a way to um, obscure my own path in a way. Mm-hmm. It's just kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, I'm because of my other hangups about finances, um, mm-hmm. but I don't want to address those. You see, it's more pure if I can say that it's like, you know, Buddhism is saying that I should be a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, you know, restrained in my financial pursuits, etc. So I think like that's one angle. Um, and I, however, at the other angle that I'm like doing for myself is that um, I'm, I'm really careful to not monetize the Buddha's teachings, like especially on its own. Um, I do believe that is a very explicit like um, mentioning in in the suttas as well. Right? It's like all the teachings are are free, um, uh, like you know dana is accepted, of course. Um, however, a lot of what I'm like bringing in terms of like entrepreneurship is much more around like the actual projects that you want to do themselves or about writing, etc. So there's like a skill for which I am being compensated. And of course, the way I teach, like fundamentally is tied into my own belief system, right? Um, however, like that's how I'm separating two in my head is that like, you know, of course, I'll give you a package of like, you know, mindset and also the practical skill. But the part I'm actually charging is the practical skill part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a really helpful separation. Mm-hmm. I love how you said as well how the how Buddhism, in a sense, I mean, could obscure our actual path, and maybe you know we we would assume that if one follows their path and their destiny, then they are in the highest service to the world. And if that path includes you know whatever amount of success in any you know financially or whatever. Um, then, you know, they are still being of service. It just makes me think about how, you know, like, (laughs) you know, we can really get caught in stories about things and even the story of needing to be monastic or needing to be austere in our lifestyle, uh, maybe is a story, maybe is something that's revolving around ego, uh, you know, potentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I just I love I love how you put that, and and really, if the sort of practice is is um, being less attached to ego, then um, we can we can do that, and we can have whatever, and it's about our relationship to it, and um, and how we still give back to the world. So, anyways, that's that's what was going on in my noggin as you as you were saying that. <laughs> yeah, and like I I definitely want to share with anyone listening that I. Uh, 
I this is definitely my practice edge. I think, <laughs> um, literally, I was writing down lists of twenty of my deepest fears about money just to like really understand the the um the unconscious or subconscious parts of my mind that are, you know, relating to money in funny ways, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like that's um important to explore, especially as a practitioner, because it's like. The the Mara I fear is not the Mara that I think it is, if that makes sense. Because um, I think, like, the obvious, like, the, the Mara I fear is, like, oh, I'm going to be one of, you know, like, those people who use spirituality for financial gain. Like, that that's what I think I'm battling with. But in reality, <laughs> it's actually disguise. Like, I'm my Mara is something else that's using this story <laughs> to distract me. <laughs> So, yeah, definitely a battle of wits going on. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for for being so open and sharing on that. Um, I think this kind of relates to, you know, another topic that I wanted to to talk with you about, which is just, you know, how we practice Buddhism or maybe just how we practice mindfulness in the Western world. Yes. And as you know, and and as our listeners know, mindfulness is has been the the hot thing for a while now. For I mean, over a decade, and you know, as someone who is really immersed in in Buddhist practice as well, I wanted to hear from you whether you think that mindfulness can exist on its own without that context, not necessarily of Buddhism, but of a framework of larger. Um, values and a world view, I guess, and mm-hmm. that creates a context for our practice and whether we can get lost <laughs> w- mm-hmm. without that and whether our practice can lead us astray. So I know that w- that was a lot, but um, please share any thoughts that you have. <laughs> I was really excited when you sent that as a discussion topic because I wanted to know, hmm, let's spread that on. Um, so So please do tell me after I go on my little soapbox here. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, according to my teacher, so I want to say first of all, like, what is right view, right? I feel like I'm not in a position where I can autonomously generate right view. So I am, you know, definitely adopting those of the teachers I admire. Um, and just and, and just for listeners, um, tell us what you mean by by right view. Oh gosh. So what I mean by right view is that it's a component of the um, Noble Eightfold Path, um, which is what the Buddha advised as the practical solution to end all suffering. However, what exactly is right view is quite debated, um, even among Buddhists. And um, in fact, I think there is this like saying, um, possibly from the suttas as well, that like worldly people debate, you know, worldly things, and practitioners debate views, but it's not seen as a good thing. So, um, so I think like uh, to me, right view is something that is getting us closer to liberation. Like, like th- that to me is the ultimate goal. So, which I think is like, ironically, what you're pointing out is that now in the Western world, mindfulness is sometimes used as a tool, but it is separated from this ultimate goal of some kind of liberation or transcendence or something. Um, and I feel like that um, is different from the, the, um, the way that the teachers I'm, I'm interacting with are um, teaching. Um, especially the, uh, 
so that so that's one component, right? There's the idea that like there is an ultimate goal that we're aiming for, which is you know liberation, nirvana, nibbana, like all of that. But I think the second part um, is the ethical component, right? There is the idea of sila, like how like are you you know practicing um, while also keeping the precepts, um, which we, we can go into. Um, and I I personally feel like that's where sometimes like mindfulness and alone starts to fall apart um, because like for me like this is my own personal experience when I'm not keeping my precepts to the degree that I would like like mindfulness cannot be maintained <laughs> like you know like the like I can keep it up for a while but like as we get deeper and deeper like the the defilements from not keeping precepts starts to get more and more magnified it becomes like a funhouse mirror effect so like to me um i feel like you know definitely some mindfulness is better than no mindfulness at all um however it, it like then there there becomes like a progression of like okay now that we've started off with mindfulness which is interestingly enough not the way that is taught in in asia i think in asia you actually start with ethics first mm -hmm. um however i think it's like you know start wherever you can <laughs> start with something um and then like fill in the the gaps you know like it's like okay now that you've you know had a taste of mindfulness um do you see where this instability and in how you can maintain it like you know what are the factors and then we can kind of get into like you know ethics and right view and all of these other um components hmm. Can you say a little bit more about the precepts and what precepts mm -hmm. you practice that help to create this container for your mindfulness to flourish? Yeah. Um, so I mean the five precepts. Um, so, um, you know, some of them are pretty obvious, like, right, you know, don't don't kill, don't like lie. Um, you know, I think the most uh, controversial one is probably no intoxicants. Um, so, uh, for me, I, I don't drink alcohol these days. Um, so, so that's been helpful for me. Um, however, I think like the more, um, tricky conversation, which I would love to have your take on is the use of psychedelics. I think like that's always been like the, the tricky line nowadays, especially in the West coast, <laughs> um, or like coastal areas uh, where there's a lot more access to this kind of modality. Yeah. Um, we can take a little sidebar um, and and go into that cul-de-sac and maybe come back um, to to this topic. Um, are you up for it into the yeah. psychedelic realm? Because I'd be yeah. curious to get your thoughts too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> my thoughts are yet unformed, and I would love someone who's very qualified to have this discussion. Tell me. Actually, yeah. Well, thoughts. this is this is why I bring it up because I think I am not the person you know to really to 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 add much on this topic. Mm -hmm. um, but, both from an experiential realm and also just from a, I guess, what would you say, like an objective or academic realm? I really don't know much about it. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I took mushrooms in college. That's that's all I have going for me <laughs> right now. Mm -hmm. But I, I do have my own biases on it, mm -hmm. um, which are I'm I'm very open to it at, at this point. But up until this point, I think I just haven't wanted to do it for a couple reasons. A I'm just, an, I'm an anxious person and like drugs, they make me like more anxious, mm -hmm. like, um, like, <laughs> like, like, mar like smoking marijuana. Like I usually like get more anxious, not less anxious. And I know some people are like that. And I think it's just like the fear of losing control. So like, I just it never really appealed to me a and B it kind of in the context of, of what we're talking about, like my, my biases 
is always felt like it was like a shortcut almost. And like, mm-hmm. I, um, I do things very, very slowly. I, I go really slowly. So like, you know, even just um, my meditation journey and spiritual path, like I've never had like a big, like, oh my God, like I had like a total huge experience where like, now I feel like I'm one with everything. And then from that point on, it was all, no, it was just, it's just been a very slow, boring, gradual process of what I feel like is, you know, a waking up process that's continues to unfold day by day in a very boring way. Um, so, so I just, and like, I like that. And that's sort of the path that I feel suits me the best as far as my own process. That's what my intuition tells me is the most helpful thing versus sort of expediting that. But I'm trying to be open-minded to psychedelics and I really respect other people's experiences and it's maybe something that I would experiment with more. So that's sort of, that's sort of my take on it, you know, just based on my own life experience, but I don't know if any of that resonates with you. Oh, hundred percent actually. <laughs> um, same way. I feel like, um, unfortunately a lot of these drugs don't work in my favor anyway. So, um, so I don't feel like I'm missing out on much. Um, but also like, the teachers I admire tend to view them as shortcuts as well. In fact, I'm going to use the word shortcuts. Like, oh, yeah, that's exactly the word they use, too. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, I do see that for some folks, especially if there is no um, access to spiritual practice, like either through, you know, um, happenstance or like, you know, if you are like experiencing like mental health issues, it's like, it's just so hard, right? I can, I don't think it's easy to expect people to meditate and do all these things. And Mm -hmm. I can see how like, you know, it can be medicine, like, you know, given you're working with trained professional um, who can give you guidance through the experience. Um, so, so I feel like I'm a little bit torn and, and I, I can only speak to my own keeping of the precepts and in, in my own like expression of it, I, I don't partake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like, you know, have, I don't know if you can see, but this, the handsome gentleman, you probably can't see like up here, Mr. Ram Dass mm-hmm. <laughs> on top of the shelf there. Like, you know, if I know that psychedelics, you know, for him and many other people, they were some kind of like uh, a doorway into spiritual practice. And Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe how I'm thinking about it um, now is that like, it actually, it provides an entryway, but it's not a substitute for the work that we actually do, like on the ground, like in, in the world, you know, that still has to happen, but maybe psychedelics could, you know, can turn us on to, to that and show us what's you know, our, our possibilities. So can you tell me more about your boring path? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, again, it's like, I mean, I know a lot of people that that are, you know, into spirituality and, and many spiritual teachers too, like they've had like that big like experience. It was like the moment where like, oh my God, I realized that like it was all one and mm-hmm. and from there I knew that I was going to be a spiritual teacher or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, I've had some really beautiful moments <laughs> and there are certain days when I feel really connected to mm-hmm. to everything and it happens in a very subtle way. Mm-hmm. But that's that's been the process for me is like a very slow peeling back of the onion of that. Mm-hmm. And that's been my journey, you know, like mental health journey, spiritual journey has just been that slow unfolding. 
and oftentimes like extremely like painful and not pleasant. Um, like, I mean, the, the, the biggest and best awakening, I think that a gift was like this, uh, like a, a period of my life where I had like incredibly intense panic attacks for um, every single day for a period of like over a year, one to two years, this, this was happening. And that made me super grateful for life and for like just the days when like things feel okay. That was like an awakening process. So it, def it definitely hasn't been like a, anything like super pleasant. Um, although I think it's allowed me to appreciate life a lot more and to, and to have a lot more gratitude and, it just, it's just feels like day, you know, day by day, it's just a learning process and, um, and not, not a linear one either. <laughs> it's just like, learn, you know, forward and backwards, kind of like a, maybe like a spiral movement. And that's just how it, it feels to me. And I, I sort of, I sort of like that. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a gradual process. Yeah. So this is, I feel like really related to what we're, dancing around right it's like you know this precepts is so boring and not sexy at all in those yeah, practice. right, right. Um, so i was wondering yeah like what um brought to mind this topic um about the uh, discussing mindfulness and with without the context of ethics and all the um, views and all the other things yeah it's something that i've been interested in for a long time i think in the beginning of when mindfulness became really popular, this was a question that everyone was asking, especially in, you know, I was kind of in the academic world-ish, or at least, you know, grad school and going to lots of conferences on, on, on mindfulness. And this was always a topic is like, can mindfulness, can the practice of, of mindfulness meditation be extracted from its cultural and philosophical context, AKA Buddhism, and, and maybe some other traditions as well. Can it just be plopped out and plopped into the Western mind and people can practice? Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like it's it's always been like a yes and no for me, like in a way it can, because like it can help people to deal with pain, it can help people to deal with anxiety and depression. I mean, there's so much like, you know, empirical evidence around secular, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I've always separated that from people who practice meditation for spiritual, more spiritual reasons too, about, you know, identifying as much with self and being more connected to the world around us. But I think the question came up again, because now I'm wondering, like, even the secular approach, like, I don't, I'm not super convinced that it's like that as effective maybe without that context and i wonder i just see people struggling with it so much maybe it's a projection for me but i see people really struggling with practice and the people who um you know preach mindfulness the loudest like these are really deep practitioners and quite honestly i think oftentimes really emotionally healthy people Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of people who have had trauma, who struggle with mental health, mm -hmm. like they really struggle with practice. And I would just wonder, like, is, is this helpful for, for them? And, mm -hmm. and if, you know, if they do practice, does it need, do you need the precepts? Do you need context around it? Mm -hmm. Is there something different that would be more helpful? So yeah. I don't know if that gives a more background. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. Oh gosh. Um, actually reminding me, um, so 
uh, in the last uh, Kind Camp session, which is the meditation and writing community I run, um, I remembered your uh, in your film um, where you had mentioned that oh, like, or I guess it wasn't you. I think it's the, one of the experts you interviewed had mentioned that you know breathing practice can be like trauma triggering, and I remember thinking. Yeah, I gotta make sure I mention that. And often alternative. So then I, we were um, practicing box breathing. Um, mm -hmm. So breathing in, in the 4444 pattern. However, there's an apnea hold, right, of four seconds. And I can mm -hmm. see, like, oh, yeah, this is totally triggering. It's like you're activating your autonomous nervous system by holding your breath sometimes. So then I was like, oh, I gotta remember, like, listening directionally or something like that as an alternative practice. Um, and I remember to offer that. Um, so, so this topic of like being trauma aware is told completely top of mind for me. Um, and I feel like that that's exactly it, right? Like the, the OG Buddha, like he was living in a completely different cultural context. Like, you know, the, the people of his time, like they, they had their worries, but they were like, you know, livelihood related worries, um, which led to a completely different kind of practice. And that we need to be taking account of like our current mental toxins <laughs> that we are ingesting um, and like, you know, the current um, like zeitgeist of the way we're experiencing the world. The these need to be accounted for when we ask people to practice. Yeah. Um, so I remember like your film was really generous in its offering to remind us of this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, wh what is the diet? What is the diet that we're consuming mentally, like as a culture? And like, is the practice the same, like practicing meditation if we have like a different diet? Like does, I think we're all trying to figure out kind of how to adapt this to make it helpful for modern Western, I mean, and Eastern, but just speaking about the society mm -hmm. that we live in mm -hmm. to make it useful for modern society and um, and, and yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of traumas happening and, and TikTok is, is changing our brain and, and rewiring it. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like, is <laughs> it just seems like it's like, you know, even in Buddhism, like everything is context dependent. So like, is the practice even the same, like within a different context and mm -hmm. I don't, doesn't yeah. need to be adapted. So when you were bringing up the boring path, that really like lit up my, my <laughs> the little light bulb in my head because I think that's what I am also <laughs> trying to advocate for. And oh, <laughs> we can cut this part, but please have a <sighs> choking on water. Oh. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah. <clears throat> get it out, get it out. Okay. Okay. Picking up on. <laughs> yeah, so let's take that again. Matthew's boring path. Uh, okay. Are, are you okay? Like for reals? For uh, real? I'm also okay. the, the person among my friends who chokes on water for no reason. Yeah, it's just like it happens all the time for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what you were saying was so juicy. Oh. Um, <laughs> and Bouncing so intriguing that I just I started choking. <laughs> Um, yeah, so like, I think what you were mentioning about the boring path is it, right? Like, we're in this world right now where mindfulness is starting to be like a little bit juicy and interesting. Um, however, it comes with this like, like expectation, 
um, which I think is causing uh, some people distress. It's like, how come, like, I'm following these instructions, I'm doing everything on Headspace, it works for a while, and then it stops working. Like, there must be something wrong with me, because these people look really yogic and peaceful, and I'm not. Mm. And I, I feel like um, this, like need or like this drive to, to be like no it's just not you it's because of the way it's presented mm -hmm. um you know it's not um customized to your needs um and like the and the fact that we are living in this like overly stimulated world now that wasn't true in in the context of the historical buddha and that we need to account for that as well and so when it comes to when we're talking about tiktok like i find that um <clears throat> a large part of the peace that I'm able to gain in these longer retreats is not just the, the sitting, it's the fact that I'm rem I'm detoxed from my mm. usual doses of like, you know, digital stimulants, right? Like there is also um, uh, this this need to like take care of the, the inputs, the sensory inputs that we're receiving on a daily basis um, instead of expecting people to like be busy all day with work which is really necessary and immediately break like step on the brakes on a very fast moving car yes, sit quietly yes. for five minutes and magically become peaceful like that's never going to happen like that because that's not a realistic expectation to put on people a hundred percent and i'm realizing this has become an increasing difficulty for me right now in my practice like if I'm feeling very scattered throughout the day and very busy and having so many different sensory inputs, trying to just put on the brakes, like I wonder if it does more harm than good. I really have to to de-escalate or decelerate very slowly. And you know, for for that's why I you know I love the kind of trauma-informed discussion. Like, what can people do? as they're decelerating, like maybe it's a movement practice or, or doing a walking practice. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's been huge. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to comment too, on what you were saying about like, you know, just like how people are practicing and how it's being presented to people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I agree. Like if people are practicing with the mindset of like, okay, like I have to do this practice in order to feel better in order to um, to get rid of some negative feeling that I'm having or to like um, uh, improve myself and then I'm getting frustrated around that. Like all of that is like in service of, of ego. And, and I think this comes back to wh why this question came up around like, do we have to have like the right view and the right frameworks around practice in order for them to truly be serving us? Because if we don't, this it becomes an ego practice. Um, and that's great in certain ways. It can be a really nice self-improvement practice, but as we all know, more ego equals more suffering. And so are we just feeding our egos another, um, another practice to, uh, you know, to fatten itself up and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and to, to cause us more suffering? Yeah. Um, and I, I also want to emphasize that, like, I have this, like, also this imagery of, like, fattening up our ego, right? But what I've learned, like, th through my own mistakes and, like, through wise teachers is that I think people think of someone with a high sense of ego to be, like, a, a tech bro who is, like, you know, pursuing, like, you know, spiritual practice and getting into jhanas and psychedelics. It's, like, it's, like, one view. But, like... The, the insidious thing about ego is that low self-esteem and feeling bad and using practice to punish yourself 
is also a form of ego. Yes. <laughs> and it's a very like like twisted form of ego because you don't even see it. It's like, oh, like I'm already denigrating myself. I must be reducing my ego, right? But it's still increasing this like sense of self in order to flagellate it. And I feel like that's the hardest thing for me to like of course deal with myself, but also to communicate with people because if I tell people this then usually they feel worse and the ego grows even more. So I was wondering, like in your experience, what are some ways that you've been able to point out the ego inflation issue without either upsetting people and inflating their egos even more or um, blinding them to this issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, it's, it's such a great point. Um, we just to just to just to kind of say again basically what you said but i think we think of people who tend to be maybe more anxious or depressed or like shy or quiet as like not having a big ego but that's not what we're talking about we're not talking about that type of we're talking about identification with ourselves and sometimes the 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 most quietest among us can have, there's a lot of ego in that because there's a lot of attachment to ourselves and what other people think of us. And mm -hmm. so, but your, to your question about like pointing that out, man, I mean, I think this comes back to what we were talking about before we started recording is like, man, just like bearing witness to people's experience and being a mirror for that. Um, Cause you know, I would just worry that any, uh, sort of direct, even just trying to name that, you know, verbally can really just be confusing and mm -hmm. uh, trusting that that process of, of being more aware of that self can unfold. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think, you know, like even from a mental health perspective, like you're, when you're treating anxiety and for, and depression, for example, maybe you are helping with, um, with that process of, of softening ego a little bit. Um, because you kind of have to, like, when a, let's just say like, so someone has social anxiety, um, you kind of have to like, you know, the treatment is exposure. And so you kind of have to like, just be okay with, um, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm having a hard time putting it into words, but I, I do think that it's, it is a spiritual practice in a way. I think there is a little bit of softening or of identification with, oh my God, like this is who I am. Um, and, uh. And, and, and it can, it can break down in a way. Right. And I feel like, especially as someone who's in this like spiritual care provider role, like <laughs> my ego has evolved to be even more insidious. You see, even from this whole conversation, my latest ego issue is thinking that it is my job <laughs> to point it out to people. <laughs> right. And be like, I must help you by, by pointing out all these like subtleties of practice. And that is itself my ego. So I'm like, oh man, like the game gets even harder the more like we, you know, the more the ego sees us pointing at it, the more it like morphs and shifts into another form. And I'm like, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, it's so, it's so sneaky. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it, it always figures out a way to disguise itself, even mm -hmm. under the guise of like being an egoless person or like a spiritual person or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, it's usually just the ego having another cloak on. Mm -hmm. and we don't even recognize it happening. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for those those of you listening, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do let you... us know your thoughts on, on yeah. ego transcendence. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I also wanted to mention 
like an interfaith component to what we're discussing. I know we're we're talking about um Buddhist practice, but um to to address your earlier point about like mindfulness meditation and its context, I feel like the one part I'm noodling on is like I as a as a chaplain uh, in training, uh, like what we're learning is actually to practice to support um people of all faiths or none. Um, and so, like, although, like, you know, my own practice is based on, like, you know, Buddhist um, context of meditation, I believe that meditation is helpful even in other religious contexts. And every major religion has its own form of contemplation. It could be prayer. But, like, I feel like the benefit of all of these has to do with, like, giving up one's ego. So it could be to, like, serve God. It could be to, um, to un understand or to realize the the not self nature of our being like i feel like there's a although our language may be very different um as long as we are doing so in a non-ego serving way um i think it can be of great benefit no matter what religious background we're coming from so i, I think like yeah and and i see that like that's the um issue with like mindfulness meditation standalone for um a like purpose of self-improvement um like that that's where it kind of like is missing this transcendence component mm -hmm. so i was wondering matthew like i i see like you you do a very fantastic job like teaching mindfulness and meditation and my understanding is that you you are providing a lot of the the tactical support right for like just dealing with particular issues so are you planning to provide more of this context in your in your work or sorry you're already doing it and i'm missing missing the latest and greatest yeah no it's a good question um i think so in certain ways i definitely want to continue to teach mindfulness and meditation and um and to support people um in that way who are on a spiritual path mm -hmm. and as far as like doing that in kind of business consulting realm in one sense yes um i um am very interested in in teaching mindfulness through the practice of improv Mm -hmm. And I know I've mentioned this on the on the podcast before and probably to you, but um, I think it's a, such a great alternative to mindfulness practice or as a, a, a supplement or an adjunct to mindfulness practice. And it's such a, a such a Zen practice of, of stepping into the unknown. And so I'm interested in like delivering and teaching um, maybe in kind of different ways. That would be one way. And, you know, also working with individuals and, and organizations. Um maybe not directly through mindfulness meditation, but supporting people in the same way, showing up with them and bearing witness and not knowing and being in a process of co-discovering mm -hmm. kind of these same principles that come up um, in Buddhism and in, in spiritual practice and being a, a someone who can, can hold a mirror to that. That's fantastic. Like, and then do you find um, folks who are amenable to this? Cause I'm trying to imagine, right? Do you, if you don't know this is a missing component, would you know what you're searching for? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about like, you know, support. Someone comes with a problem mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they want some help. And, you know, I'm just thinking about that, that subtle difference between 
um, offering a solution and being with someone as they discover that solution. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's not the solution that you even had in mind, right? Uh, you together can go on this unfolding process of how do I best solve this problem within this particular context, meaning at this particular moment, because some solutions I think are context dependent. And so continuing to just be present and, and be with people in that unfolding process, um, I think is, is something great and something that you get excited about in the consulting world. Fantastic. Yeah. And Kristen, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, you know, we talked a, a little bit about, um, how practice is, is going for both of us now, but you mentioned one of your edges, which is um, kind of working with that tension in, in um, as far as uh, fine, sorry, finances go. <laughs> Hard to say, right? Gosh, yeah. So maybe some Freudian thing is happening. I think I was struggling with it before too. Wow. Um, but what are some other what are some other practice edges for you right now? What are you working with in your practice and where is that edge? Yeah. Um, so I think lately it's, it's um, that financial component, but also um, the whole boring path. I would say that that is my um, practice edge right now. I see that um, in order to pursue my entrepreneurial path, I end up participating in like social media and like posting and et cetera, that gets my mind really busy. <laughs> and I feel like, hmm, I I'm definitely not practicing what I'm preaching here. Like I find myself like really stimulated and like really um, comparing myself to others <laughs> and to essentially the Brahma Vihara path, the exact opposite, <laughs> like happens a lot, right? Um, so, so I feel like I'm definitely much more aware of this in, in actually just recent days. I'm like, hmm, as I'm preparing to go on a retreat end of this week, um, I remember thinking, oh gosh, it would really suck to slam the brakes <laughs> like at the end of the week. I better start slowing down now. Um, so I'm already like, you know, stepping away from my usual online platforms. And like for me, actually, like YouTube is quite an addiction. It's like an endless, like, you know, visual and audio stimulation. Right. Um, so I think like these are areas in which I'm, you know, uh, so like there's a five precepts, but there's also the eight precept variant that um, lay people undertake um, in, in traditional Buddhist contexts. And one of them is like avoiding entertainment. Um, and I'm like, oh, there's a reason for that. Like even back in the day, they realized that entertainment, um, which to them was like going to shows and dancing and whatever, like was already considered a thing that distracts you from practice. Right. So, so I, f I find like that's been um, helpful to um, be more, much more mindful of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, pe some people that might be listening might be rightfully thinking like, oh, well, you know, if I really want to pursue meditation or spiritual practice more seriously like does that mean i have to give up um <laughs> like entertainment or like yeah. i have to give up like alcohol or whatever i know I we're like so lame <laughs> <laughs> what what would you say in response yeah that's uh, a wonderful question and i feel like it's funny because I've heard these messages from people like so many years ago and I was like oh god no I don't I don't want to do any of that 
Um, so one message I've heard from monastics, whom I trust, because they really are like giving up everything, is they are like, the ones going, oh no, don't give up anything you're not ready to, because it would totally rebound and you would just be even worse. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so I think there is like this subtlety of giving up where like we call it a renunciation in, in Buddhism sometimes, right? Where like a conventional meaning of renunciation is like, you know, cutting off something and like giving up in a very like, oh, uh, like in a way that separates you from the world or something like that. However, um, I find that if, like eventually after many iterations of trying to give up things, like I realized that like it's really easy to give up if I can see the obvious benefit from doing it. So like for me, like unfortunately I see a direct correlation between me consuming online content and not having particularly peaceful time in, in my inner world. So, um, so then it's, it's like a really obvious trade. Um, and you're reminding me, actually, this also came up in a recent discussion with um, Kind Campers, um, the meditation community I run, uh, where I said there is something that's a, like a logical predication that's happening that I, I'm able to make that not all our people are able to make, which is like, it's, to some extent, I can access happiness and peace in the present moment. And if you don't, have the ability to access this then it's very hard for you to uh, like convince yourself right because you have you're trading something that's obviously better like whatever like stew like sensory stimulants of your choice versus feeling shitty <laughs> and i'm like obviously like anyone would choose the the better thing um and it takes like multiple iterations of practicing um mindfulness and meditation and like all these other components um to your capacity and availability before one can have access to this inner peace and calm, whatever it, it may be, which I, I want to say, I want to emphasize, I don't have this all the time. If you see me on the streets, you'll obviously see why. Um, but it's like, I know that it's there. It's always been there. And there's like a reassurance sort of situation. And I, I feel like that's why I feel bad, because if you don't have this, then I'm like, oh, then it, it doesn't make any sense. So I was wondering for you, Matthew, like how how do you make this inner trade or if, if there's any trading at all going on in your mind yeah yeah i, I want to comment on that but I, I i wanted to say first that um i've actually never heard it i've never heard someone phrase it that like that like oh if you can't find happiness and peace in the present moment and you're feeling crappy well of course you're going to find some other thing that can stimulate yourself mm -hmm. that that's that's wonderful i'm going to be thinking about that but, um, you know, I would say I, I am on the same wavelength as you, um, as far as like giving things up and something that I have to really learn that practice on a daily basis, because there's one thing there, there's, there's something to, um, tr you know, telling ourselves, trying to convince ourselves that we should give something up. And as you're saying just doesn't work. There's always a rebound process. In my experience, um, the the most effective way to kind of give something up um, is to to really suffer from it, <laughs> and then and then you're ready. Just like you're saying, like um, like to really experience it. And this is the beautiful part I think about about this practice is just like, if we just bring awareness to our experience, like even when we're doing, even when we're 
engaging in the vice or the addiction or whatever it is, we'll see at some point, at some point there will be enough suffering there that will be motivated to change. Mm -hmm. And we actually don't need to necessarily have, it's helpful to have these these guidelines and, and rules about how you should and shouldn't behave, but mm-hmm. that's never going to get someone to to truly transform until they're motivated enough internally to do that work because they've suffered so badly from the behaviors that they're doing. Right. So, you know, I would just say like, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Um, just bring a lot of awareness to it. And when you're ready to change, when it's there's been enough suffering there, mm-hmm. then we'll we'll make a shift. Life will, life will teach us how, how to be happy, how to not suffer if we're willing to, to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So related to that, I wanted to revisit um, when you were mentioning your panic attacks. And I was wondering for you, was it practice that helped you get out of it? Or was it a combination of factors? Like how would you, if someone else, someone was coming with the same problem, what would you say to them? It was practice, but in a very modified way. I actually couldn't practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually had to step away from my meditation practice because um, I was experiencing panic attacks, anxiety, like so acutely that just sitting down and closing my eyes and paying attention to my breath would just Mm -hmm. throw me into a panic episode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone might say, well, you just need to like sit with that and like ride it out or whatever. But I think at that point, I mean, once you're kind of out of that you know, they would say like your window of tolerance like mm-hmm. it's probably not healthy to continue doing that to continue being dysregulated so um one type of practice that was really helpful for me was actually just listening to sounds mm-hmm. um that i could do i couldn't go in and, and pay attention to my breath but mm-hmm. i could listen to sounds in the room i could listen to sounds outside listening to the birds chirping was so helpful for me and I realized through that process and, you know, and reading about it more, like it's actually helping to orient our brain into the here and now to connect us to our environment mm-hmm. and to really tell our nervous system that we're safe. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's hard to get that message by going internally, but mm-hmm. we can get that message by opening our eyes and our ears into the here and now, and our brain can then tune and have the sense that, okay, I'm safe here. So that was really helpful. And once things started to get better for me, I could slowly get back to my practice. Um, but there are still certain days for me where it's like, you know, I know sitting right now is not the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. And and there's a voice that's like, well, you just need to like sit through it. But um, I try to be skillful with it. So sometimes it's like, yeah, I need to do some moving meditation. Like yoga is always fine for me. I don't get activated by that. So if I'm stretching and breathing, beautiful, going for a walk, beautiful. So I still make adaptations to that on certain days. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I remember you were bringing up like these movement based practices as being really important. Right. And and I feel like that's also the thing I didn't realize for the longest time. I, I, I came into Buddhism like, um, with the very like pure Zen, like Shikantaza, just sitting sort of practice, and I felt like mm, it it helped it definitely, but it wasn't um, super like directly addressing some of the whole like slamming the brakes sort of feeling you get. Um, and what I learned much later, um, listening to monastics from the Theravadan tradition, is that like they have a whole bag of tricks. Like they do qigong and they do yoga and like you know they do like in, especially in Thai forest tradition, tons of walking meditation, right? 
um, it, because they recognize that it's there is some bodily chi or energy thing that needs to be dissipated before we can go into sitting meditation. Um, and like, um, and I'm hoping that you know it will become more mainstream soon for people to recognize these differences. Absolutely, and just considering you know the what we're all carrying around these days, the amount of stress, the amount of trauma that we're absorbing from things that are happening around us in the world, um, I think we really need to to you know consider these other ways to help do this 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 practice in a way that um, it might be different than than it was practiced before. So. Mm -hmm. Kristen, is there anything else that we haven't talked about or anything else that you wanted to share with our audience here about you and your work um, that we haven't covered yet today? Oh, um, thank you for the delightful conversation. Um, I... I feel like we actually end up covering all the topics <laughs> that we were dropping into our, our DMs um, because they're all interlinked, right? We talked about like um, right view, we talked about precept keeping, we talked about modern like I like um, mindful mindfulness meditation um, in with and without context. They are all related to subtle tweaks to the way that meditation is taught today, and I feel like. Um, especially the the more commercialized app form of meditation, like you know, does this job of making it really easy to onboard someone to meditation. Um, however, like without all the additional support, like it can leave people uh, a little feeling a little bit disappointed when they don't get the results that they're desiring. Mm -hmm. So, um, however, I also feel like if I was listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, there's lots of things I need to fix. It seems like maybe if this person's legit, but what do I do now? Um, and so I I have a few offerings um, that that kind of like streamline some of this thinking. So one is a book called um, Debug Your Meditation, where I compiled the greatest hits of um, of the Buddhist teachers I trust um, in a, a FAQ format. So you can look for your question du jour. Um, and it also comes with a children's story, so that it's a it's a little bit fun to read. Um, so um, do check it out if that's something of interest. Um, I also run a um, meditation and reflective writing community, where I surprise participants <laughs> with a uh, with a different flavor of um, Buddhist practice um, every um, uh, twice a month. Um, so. The idea is to provide the space for you to have your own epiphanies. So I tell Kind Campers that I teach nothing. Like, this is not even a course or a workshop. Um, what I'm doing is holding the space for your self discovery and to provide the prompts and, like, uh, a tiny bit of instruction. But it's not the instruction itself you need to learn, it's whatever you discover inside of yourself that you need to learn. Um, so that's been really fun for me to um, learn to hold this space and to learn to digest all of the Dharma books and talks I listen to and present it in a more uh, straightforward format. Um, though, of course, I'm, you know, definitely uh, much, very much a, a beginner um, at this too and, and welcoming all feedback from participants. Um, and thirdly, I'm also offering one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, coaching slash consulting. Um, so right now I am helping folks with writing a book in eight weeks. <laughs> um, so, which is a, a, a quite a bit of an ask. Um, however, I'm hoping to make it fun and also to um, profuse this with a bit of the Buddhist mindfulness context so that um, you can overcome writer's block, um, you can 
essentially project manage in a way that is taking account of your own needs and uh, leading first with loving kindness towards yourself. Mm. Um, so, and, and I'm hoping to um, continue to uh, converse with folks who are, you know, you, if you do have a problem and you would like to think of a solution that, you know, is aligned with the Buddhist context, I'm very open to that as well. Wonderful. So, yes, Matthew, a whole bunch of, <laughs> a whole bunch of offerings um, um, that I'm continuing to refine. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. And I will make sure to link to them um, in the show notes um, and to link to your website. But just for people that are listening right now, is it uh, kristenchong.com.org? Uh, yes, dot com. Dot com. Okay. Okay. And I will put a link to that. This has been so lovely. Um, I feel like we really did a deep dive into so many great topics. And I, I do think that we hit on pretty much all the topics we were we were planning on. So kudos. Um to us for doing that, but, um, we should do another part of this sometime, a part two, um, cause I know there's a lot more to go and obviously we'll continue to stay in touch. I'm looking forward to following your work. Yes, likewise. And, um, you know, if you're listening, uh, we would love to hear from you so that we can know what to talk about. That's relevant to your needs. <laughs> Reach out to Kristen or to myself. I'll put my um, contact info in there as well and tell us what you liked about this conversation what questions or concerns or skepticism or whatever you have and what you want to hear more of so um thank you all for listening and thank you Kristen, for being here thank you for listening to the middle way don't forget to subscribe rate review share all that good stuff and i'll see you back here soon